Hey everyone, thanks for joining. Today I'm speaking with Angel Eduardo. Uh, Angel is a writer. He recently had a piece out for Center for Inquiry and it was about this new thing called star manning, which I think I'm going to try to straw, straw man later, but we'll see. And then he also had a really good piece out in Newsweek, um, was it last week? Uh, about basically getting rid of standards in education. Um, and I'll put the links to the, both those uh, in the description. Angel, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so, I mean, we interact a little bit on Twitter. And I think, like, you were one of those people where I'd always see your stuff on my timeline, but I and I just kind of assumed I was following you, but it turned out I wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> that happens to me, too. But, yeah, <laughs> I mean, so, like, with the star manning, I, I, I'm going to see if I can got this correct. Um, and I reread that again earlier today, just to make sure I wasn't missing anything. Now, basically mm -hmm. it's trying to take the idea of steel manning and then moving it up, you know, like ratcheting it up to 11 type of thing. So you are starting off from the basis of looking for a commonality and you're trying to ascribe the best intentions possible at the same time as trying to come up with the best version of, I don't want to say your opponent, but the person you're speaking with best version of their viewpoint. So have I got that correct or by? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, it's, it's, uh, I, I've been calling it just as I've been talking about it and explaining it. I, I got to calling it a kind of rhetorical handshake, right? Where the, the origin of the handshake, as far as I understand it is I'm extending my open hand to you to show you that I don't have a weapon and you're doing the same thing. And we're clasping our hands together as a kind of, you know, it's a deal, you know, there's going to be no warfare here. We're just going to engage. Um, so it's a, it's a kind of argumentative version of that where by taking the time to explicitly acknowledge the other person's good intentions, you're assuming it, you're assuming good intentions, right? But, uh, I'm of the opinion that that is a really, really safe assumption to make. Like 99% of the time, probably even more than that. It's probably like 99.99% .99 of the time. People are at least trying to do what they think is the right thing to do, even if they're mistaken. Um, and so you're just kind of acknowledging that in hey. order to, in order to establish a kind of common ground of like, look, I, we are engaging in a, a similar project, right? We're trying to improve things, whatever the specific thing we're talking about here is. Um, and that's your motivation for whatever the argument is that you're making. You want to make, you want to make, you know, society better. You want to make the world better. You want to improve race relations. You want to improve schooling, whatever it is, right? And that's what you're trying to do here. And I acknowledge that. And now let me try to see if I understand your argument on that basis. And then maybe I can disagree with you, but at the very least, I'm acknowledging, you know, you're not a monster. I don't think you're trying to destroy the world, right? I don't think you're this mustache twirling, uh, you know, stereotypical old school villain. I think you're just a person trying to do what they can or trying to do their best. Okay. Now, I'm going to take this to a very far extreme. And I know in, in like the, I think it was a blog post for Center for Inquiry. I mean, you talked about Daryl Davis. I mean, and, you know, hats off to the guy like <laughs> you know i don't have that courage like i honestly don't you know right. 
Yeah. Um, but yeah, like I get that. But let's take someone like Al Baghdadi. Right? Mm-hmm. Now, if you want to take the claims of ISIS, or if you want to take the claims of, you know, Salafi Islam, and that extreme literalist fundamentalist view of it. Mm-hmm. Yes, they want a good world, but what they describe as a good world is mm-hmm. pretty it's like it's pretty horrific unless you ascribe to that particular worldview. And so I can yes, you could look at Baghdadi and say, yes, you believe you want a good world. Mm-hmm. But I, you know, and I yes, he wants his kids to have food and you know blah, 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 like what the basics that everyone wants. Like, I'm not denying any of that, Mm -hmm. but what he describes as a good world has to be said straight out. Like, no, I'm sorry, but that's not good. And it has to be, it has to be explained. I mean, you know, Mm -hmm. throwing gays off, you know, the 12th story of a building because they're gay. I mean, that's not, that's not conducive to a good society. And that has to be able to be said openly and plainly. And yes, okay, fine. You can go in there with saying, you believe you want a good world. Like, you know, again, take it to another extreme. Hitler wanted a good world, okay? Only for certain people. And that's what he thought what a good world would be. I mean, it's, I'm not, there's no defensive Hitler here. Like, I'm not saying, but again, like, so. I'll speak with anyone and I can sit down with them and say, look, I think you want that, but I'm going to be brutally honest about what I think about their worldview. And I'm going to give you a, a less extreme example of this. And so before COVID locked everything down, um, there's a pub near my place and every Monday night they play cribbage there. So it's a stodgy old person's game. (laughs) So I go there and I hang out. It's a friendly little pub, right? So like the setting matters as well. And you know, hang out with a bunch of people for a couple hours and we play cards. Now there did been this woman who was coming to the pub as well, but not for that. And uh, one night, one of the guys who was playing cribbage started talking about neutrinos and that interested me. So I started, I went into the conversation. She was there. And then later on, we went and got into politics and we didn't agree on much, but we talked back and forth. And then just before COVID closed everything down, you know, I don't even, we were, I think we were talking politics and like the way Elizabeth Warren was saying, here are my pronouns, this and that. I said, yeah, that's kind of fake. And then we got into that discussion. She was late thirties to early forties somewhere. I don't know her exact age. And, you know, she said, blah, 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 blah. I identify as queer. And we started talking about that. Now, I'd actually, because I was really curious and wanted to know what some of this stuff was, I spent a lot of time and I read a lot of mainly critical race theory and intersectionality, but I also read some gender and queer theory. And so I said, well, look, can I ask you some questions? You know, and I told her like, this is where I'm coming from. And I told her like, I'm coming from an enlightenment perspective. And I think this stuff is wrong on these things, but I want to ask you some questions. And I just got her to try to explain to me why Pete Buttigieg wasn't really a gay man because he didn't embrace his queerness, but he was only a man who slept with other men. Now, 
she believed this stuff. She was earnest. And, you know, in the course of explaining it to me, and I, I kept her away from the jargon. I said, just do it plainly. Now, I'm not saying I changed her mind or anything, but she started laughing at herself when she was giving that explanation in plain language. So, okay, I fully admit that I'm a bit of an asshole on Twitter sometimes, but whatever. I mean, I, I just, I, I'd rather just sit on Twitter and make fart jokes, man. Honestly, that's all I really want to do. But um, talking face-to-face or even talking like this, like, but I think you have to be honest about where you're coming from as well. Like, I don't want to go in there saying this is going to be kumbaya. Yes, I'll respect your, you, you, I'll respect your right to have your point of view. I'll try to understand it as best as I can. I'll acknowledge that in your mind that you're doing, you, you think you're doing something good, but, you know, like, again, take it to the extreme of al-Baghdadi. That's antithetical to everything I believe in. Mm-hmm. And I, oh, me too. And I would want to make that clear. And, uh, you know, like, yeah. So it's, it's, I'm not like, mm-hmm. like again, maybe I, I read it wrong and maybe I was just looking at it the wrong way, but it, it to me, it just seemed like a very, it just seemed like pacifist, uh, a pacifism version of dialogue or it's, mm-hmm. it's a pacifist dialectic type of thing. No, not at all. Mm-hmm. Not at all. I agree with everything you just said. Mm-hmm. Um, even down to the, to what your positions are. I'm coming from the same place as you. Um, it's it's not about acquiescence and it's not about kumbaya. It definitely not. It's definitely not about uh, you know just play nice. It's definitely not about that. It's it's about connection and understanding, compassion. It's about that. So it's about you know I vehemently disagree with Al Baghdadi, right? Like you know I couldn't possibly disagree more with that ideology, right? I I couldn't possibly, I can't imagine how much further I can get from it. But because I understand that he believes what he believes and because he believes what he believes, everything that he thinks and does is rational. It's perfectly rational from his point of view, right? That understanding is a way in. And kind of like what, you know, the example you gave about this, um, this person you were talking to, about queer theory and all that sort of stuff. Um, there was, if she saw you as an enemy, if she saw you as this person is here to destroy my sense of being, this person is here to erase me, you know, or this person is, is uh, you know, a monster who's trying to, to hurt me, she wouldn't have been as open and she wouldn't have been as, you know, to the point where she's laughing about the things that she's saying and you're disarming her in a way by, by being cordial, right? You don't have to agree. You can disagree vehemently, right? So I've been, I've been talking to people about this and um, I liken it to, it's kind of like how I, how I disagree with my siblings, right? My brothers are my best friends and, you know, and we disagree on all kinds of stuff all the time to the point where, you know, we raise our voices, we start, we're gesturing wildly, you know, we're, we're, sometimes we're pacing around, right? We're really animated and we get into it, right? And we're disagreeing hardcore and we're breaking each other down. And we, you know, we've gotten to this point where we're, we're really, we love doing it. It's, it's almost, it's almost fun to kind of dig into this thing and keep pushing and pushing and pushing, right? But there is no point during that exchange, no matter how heated the exchange itself is, 
that I don't uh, that I wouldn't pause and give my brother a hug and say I love you, right? Because we understand that what's actually happening here is the ideas are fighting, but we are not fighting, right? Like as as human beings, I'm not denying them as hum- as a human being. They're not denying me as a human being, right? So we can vehemently be opposed to each other in terms of the ideas and the ideologies and where we're coming from. The idea of star manning is just kind of laying that on the table and saying, look, I don't think you're a monster. I understand where you're coming from, or at least I want to understand where you're coming from. And I know that you're coming from a place where based on what you know and what you believe, you're doing what you think is right. I disagree with it, right? I um, I can tell you why I think you're wrong about what you're doing, but I don't doubt that you're doing it because you think it's the right thing to do and that you're not, you know, basically it's just very, 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 very few people in the world are consciously acting to make it a worse place to live, right? Okay, and yeah. Even if they're mistaken. I'll, I'll give you that, but someone like a Joel Olstein. Mm-hmm. Okay. He knows he's scamming people. Yeah. Okay. He has to. Okay. So I'm not going to think Joel Olstein's out there trying to make the world a better place. (laughs) I think, I mean, mean, he's, he's preaching that and he's selling, he's selling that fantasy. Mm -hmm. And maybe to some people out there, they get a feeling of fulfillment and that enriches their life in a way, but, He's not really like, you know, the seed faith thing is not really making poor people's lives better by making, getting them to send all their money to this guy. Yeah. He knows he's not doing that. Like, so there has to be a point where like, like, you know, like I said, Allah Dadi, which is going to sound weird because Joel Olstein's not, hasn't done anything near the level of al-Baghdadi, but Mm -hmm. al-Baghdadi believed in that version of Islam where if the whole world was Muslim and it had to be Sunni Muslim, it couldn't be Shia, right? They, they treated the Shia worse than they treated the Christians and the Jews. Yeah. Um, so it had to be that version of Islam. And if, if the whole world was that, then there would be peace everywhere. And that's what he wanted. Joel Olstein mm-hmm. wants another mansion and another jet. And he knows he's bilking people like, you know, uh, Bernie Madoff knew he was mm-hmm. bilking people. So yeah, I, I mean, there's no way I can look at Bernie Madoff and say, you tried to make the world a better place. Yeah. He made some no, people richer, but, but he thinks, he thinks that what he's doing is justified. There's some, there's some mechanism that he's applying, right? Even and Joel Osteen. It's funny that you started with al-Baghdadi and then, you know, Hitler immediately comes up. Right. And these, these people who are, um, you know, the the pinnacle of just heinous human behavior mm. right just awful awful mm. and ever since i started uh, talking about this idea those are the people that that everyone keeps bringing up right and what's interesting to me about it is that those people are actually easier to starman because their ideology is so clear and and the math is so easy to see on paper right but somebody like joel austin it's a little bit more complicated right because He's, he's, he's gotta be conscious of the fact that he is a crook and that he is totally swindling people. Right. And so what's going on there? That's harder. It's harder to dig in a little bit and find what's going on in his brain where he just what he's doing 
to the point where he can sleep at night, right? And that's where it gets interesting. And it's kind of like you just mentioned that um, the Sunni and the Shia treat each other worse, right? Yeah. Uh, because they're they're actually they're they're closer they're closer they're more closely related than they are to Christians and Jews, but they treat each other worse, right? Yeah. And and I think that's the thing is that that narcissism of, of small difference, and it becomes more difficult to understand why someone who is closer to you doesn't think exactly the same way as you. So, but the thing is, you know, somebody like Bernie Madoff, I'm sure I can I can just you know. I can suppose that he had some kind of point of view where it's like, listen, it's dog eat dog. I'm smart. It's, you know, it's morally wrong to let a sucker keep his money, right? I, I'm sure that he has some version of that point of view. And he thinks that's the best way to be. He thinks, well, listen, everybody should try to be like that. And whoever wins, wins, you know, dog eat dog. I bet that he has some version of that going on in his head. And it's totally ridiculous and it's unsustainable. And Part of part of what makes it easy for 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 me to personally refute stuff like that is because that sort of behavior doesn't scale, right? So it would be easy for me to demonstrate how that ideology that he has only works because everyone else disagrees with it, or or most people disagree with it, and he's taking advantage of that fact, right? Okay, but but either way, now we've moved from, you know, we've moved from this idea of like, okay, I get why you're doing what you're doing. I get what your motivations are, but let me explain to you why I think it's wrong. Right. So we, we shift from there. I just think that, you know, and, and these are, these are kind of, you know, extreme cases, edge cases, there might be some, you know, sociopathy going on that makes it a little more complicated. Right. But you're unlikely to meet these types of people in general. Most of the time, you're just going to be talking to somebody who disagrees with you about abortion or disagrees with you about gun control, you know? That's no, that's I, the majority of what you're going to be dealing with. You're not really going to be dealing with a Joel Osteen or oh, or a or a Bernie Madoff. And no, you're definitely almost never going to be dealing with a you know, an al-Baghdadi or a Hitler, right? Okay, yeah. No, no, I so, I, I just I wanted to start off like, you know, like I said the personal example I gave you about was about one, you know, the the the, the Buttigieg thing. And I, I I know like I acknowledge I'm going to the the extremes here, but with Bernie Madoff if what he's believing is this is dog eat dog, this is okay. You can understand his beliefs. You can understand his thinking. It's he like, you can understand why he's doing it. You can understand like his reasoning and you can give him a, you know, his motivation, but I still at that point can't, he's doing what's good for himself. He's not, there's like, there is no good intention there. There's, um, you know, Okay, the Westboro Baptist Church, the the mm -hmm. uh, the grandfather, I forget his name. Um, he had some good intentions, and it's Brad Phelps, yeah, yeah. But so you can see those good intentions. Whereas Bertie Madoff, like his intentions are, I'm going to live this way to help myself. Mm -hmm. It's not to improve the lives of anyone else. It's just to help me. So right, like this is where maybe you lose, like. I can try to understand why he's doing it. I can try to be sympathetic to the reasons that led up to it, but I cannot ascribe to him good intentions. Yeah. I think, well, I think part of the thing is, is 
shifting frameworks, right? Because as far as he's concerned, that is the right way to be. And as far as he understands it, this is good, right? He's shifting the definition in his own mind, right? To something that most people would disagree with. But he has the justification himself. He's walking around saying, no, I'm doing what's best. Because what's best is you look out for yourself. Everyone else is not my problem, right? So that's a flawed philosophy, but that's what the philosophy is. So you don't have to agree with it because it's, but you, you definitely, um, you will get further by understanding it. Um, and, and that's really all it is that I'm trying to argue. You don't have to agree. You just have to kind of, it's just, it will be impossible to steel man somebody's argument. And by that, I mean, it would be impossible to understand what someone is arguing, right? Be, be able to repeat it to them in a way that they would agree with. If you see them as something other than, you know, a human being just like you, right? If you see them as a monster, if you see them as someone who is out to get you, someone who is out to, to, you know, destroy you because they're pure evil, it's going to be so much harder to even understand where they're coming from. And again, I'm talking mostly about your day-to-day interactions, right? The, yeah. the type of people you're likely to encounter most of the time. So we talk about edge cases and we talk about these weird, yeah. you know, these uh, excesses, but, you know, it's going to work most of the time because most of the time you're not talking to psychopaths and sociopaths okay and, no, no i, I know, get that 100 like uh, i'm I, insane sociopathic yeah. criminals like you know, yeah, the people no, we're okay. talking about now yeah i mean hopefully you know you like hopefully you never have to um but okay, like day-to-day activities you know you're in the grocery store you bump to someone's shopping cart you apologize or whatever you're you're standing in a long line you start talking to someone yeah fine i mean or you know it's a work acquaintance or you know friend of a friend type of thing yeah i mean in your day-to-day life if you're out with friends and you're playing cards and there's someone else there and you know you voted biden they voted trump yeah that person no i mean obviously you should not assume that that person's a monster that's not what Mm -hmm. i'm getting at like that that's why did you vote for Trump or whatever, whatever the difference is, you know, like, why do you like pineapple on pizza? It's gross. Like, you know, like something even as silly, <laughs> silly as that, right? Like it's, yeah. But yeah, they want their kids to go to school. They want to have a, you know, a, a decent, comfortable living. They don't want, they don't want to be robbed. They don't, they're not going out to rob people They're No, they're just the average person. They've, mm-hmm. you know, just like everyone else, good days, bad days. Yeah, that's fine. I mean, I get that. Like, I'm just going to kind of try to shift, from here to your other piece but like a conversation mm-hmm. around like you know something that was in your newsweek piece about the standardized scores and all that and like the mm-hmm. meritocracy and everything like, like it is the stuff is religious like and you know, the thing john mcwarder is writing right now like that he's putting out on his Substack, the elect like i think he's doing a really good job with it but i mean mcwarder can acknowledge that yes okay you want you know you are thinking you're doing good Mm-hmm. but you're not. And I mean, he can list off the ways in which Kendi's version of anti-racism is quite racist and it's quite harmful. Mm-hmm. And I mean, McCorder can list that off. 
and again, like I, I'm, I know this is, these are, I'm trying to take it to extreme case, but I'm saying for like the conversations that really, really matter. I don't think you can just say, well, you're trying to make the world a better place. I know you said you can criticize them and everything, but it's just like, seems like I, too much of a give. It's, it's not so much, a, too much of a give. It's okay. So like, stay on the religious thing. So when Sam Harris was debating Reza Aslan or Hitchens mm -hmm. was debating Tariq Ramadan, or you can go to like, you know, William Lane Craig or any of these people. Um, they like they weren't there to convince, you know, neither Sam Harris or Reza Aslan was trying to convince each other. They were trying to convince the people in the audience yeah. who weren't firmly in either camp. Mm -hmm. Now, I know a debate is kind of a different situation, but when you're having like when someone like a McWhorter is having a discussion with Kendi or, you know, Nicole Hannah Jones, like pick any one from that camp and pick anyone from like McWhorter side, right? So just mm -hmm. like they each know where they're coming from. They each have an idea, but again, like I think that I, like, maybe it's got to be in the background or something that it, yes, you know, we acknowledge this, but we're coming here to discuss why we think the other person's wrong or something. It's just, yeah. I think there's, I mean, that's, but that's the thing is we're kind of, um, the way that I see it is that, yeah, this is what the reason we're here, right. Mm -hmm. Is to talk about these ideas, talk about your point of view versus my point of view, hash it out, figure out what makes the most sense. You know, and yeah, I'm not necessarily here to convince you, but I'm here to air my criticisms of your point of view for the benefit of the audience, right? So John McWhorter and, and Ibram Kendi are talking. McWhorter is is laying out, you know, I, he's like, you know, I read your book. This is what I understand of your argument. This is why I think it's wrong, right? The problem is that so much of the conversation gets hijacked by this feeling of you know, I need to destroy this person because he's trying to destroy me. And it, it becomes more about that than it does about the ideas themselves. It becomes that the people and the ideas are indistinguishable from each other. And, you know, you, you see it all the time. It's the way that our discourse is kind of framed, you know, like John McWhorter destroys Kendi, right? Okay, no, like that's another thing too. Like the destroying and all that, that's just silly. Um, yeah. You know, like owning the libs and all that garbage. Right. And again, like I should debate was the wrong term and it should be like watching like i said the, the the religious debates whatever those are kind of fun just to listen to the arguments and everything but right it should be more of like a dialectic and it's yeah. are right. we trying to get to a truth and yes you know so kendy wants less racism john mcwhorter wants less racism like mm -hmm. they can both agree on that racism is bad we should have as little of it as possible yeah. and you know I don't think you'll ever get rid of it, but curtail it as much as you can. Mm -hmm. um, and I, But imagine if they actually agreed to that. Imagine if okay. both of them acknowledge that the other feels that way, right? Okay. Imagine how different the conversation would go. Because right now, I mean, Kendi has called John McWhorter a racist. Yeah. So, that's, that, that, you know, we're automatically now on on we're not on common ground now we're automatically like no this person is the personification of the of the problem that i'm trying to solve yeah, right but 
see that's that's where someone like kendy loses me because okay this is right again i'm, I'm going to keep this in the like the the religious context because i believe in the right of everyone to have their faith you know like i shouldn't stop anyone from believing what they want to believe they shouldn't stop me from believing what i believe but that's a personal private thing i don't want anyone to force their beliefs onto me now a salafi muslim is not going to afford me that right you know a salafi muslim probably a 50 50 chance that might want to like slice my head off yes i will grant him that you think that the caliphate will bring a great world mm -hmm. I'll, I'll grant him all that but you but can't let him slice your head off i can't let him slice my head off right yeah no but no, i have to allow that. him to i have to allow him to give me the respect to hold my beliefs because i mean that is yeah well you, you that would be nice right but if if he's hell-bent on slicing your head off then conversation can't happen, right? So at that point, you're just you're just trying to mitigate the situation, right? You're just like, look, I need to stop you because you're going to try to hurt me, and you know, conversation is the last thing on your mind, right? But I mean, okay, with someone like that, mm -hmm. there, like, okay, someone like Ibram Kendi, mm -hmm. if you go through his worldview, McWhorter is not being anti-racist, so therefore he is racist, right? That is Kendi's world. I mean, I'm not like I'm not strong. Like, I'm not making anything up there. Like that's that's basically his worldview, right? So, well, I, I mean, he kind of. I haven't read his book yet. I have it. I haven't read it, but um, but I've read you know his essays and I've I've watched a few videos of him talk and I've seen him interact with people on on Twitter and he's he kind of jumps around with this, but but he he maintains at least officially that um people aren't racist they're either being racist or anti-racist right yeah. so he i think he would say that john mcwhorter is constantly being racist, racist. okay and that it's it's not the person it's it's the behavior that, okay that counts but but i've seen him kind of shift from that a little bit when you know when cornered or when yeah. he's speaking freely so okay so yeah that, that, that is a look at that is a distinction but yeah like i i didn't phrase it correctly but yeah that's no but i take your point though yeah so so my understanding, like, so, you know, like, I'm not saying Kendi's going to talk with me, whatever, but if, if, but that, like, my understanding was worldview, and I'm not lying or making it up or, you know, mm -hmm. I'm going to come in on that from like, here's why you're wrong, or here's why your whole premise is wrong. Sure. Because I, like I said, yes, you want, you think you're going to bring about a better world. Mm -hmm. I can acknowledge that. I, I can yeah. acknowledge that in a lot of people, mm -hmm. but I mean, your whole starting point is wrong like <laughs> I, I okay i equated this to this once and i said it's like if you had two people proposing a solution to get rid of homelessness in um mm -hmm. boulder okay like i didn't want to pick a huge city just a smaller city um one person comes up says okay my plan is going to take 10 years and it's going to cost 50 million dollars and we're going to get rid of the the underlying causes and you know homelessness will be non-existent and we'll stop people from going homeless before they become homeless, whatever he, great plan. Everyone's like, okay, that's very cool. Next guy comes up and says, I've got a plan. It's going to take one year and it's going to cost $5 million. Now, the city's obviously going to listen to this because it's right. faster and cheaper. 
Now that guy says, well, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to go hire a bunch of mercenaries and we're going to go through the city and we're going to take out every homeless person. Their mm -hmm. homeless problem solved. Now that's again, I'm going insane here, but <laughs> when I hear what Kendi says about anti-racism, mm -hmm. to me, that's the equivalent of saying, we're going to go out and kill every homeless person to get rid of homelessness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, so yeah, I understand what you're trying to say. Um, but yeah, like I said, it's it's really just like, you know, you mentioned, like I can acknowledge that he thinks he's doing the best thing that's that he can do to rid the world of this problem that he sees, right? The only thing that I'm I'm advocating for is making that explicit. So, you know, if if you were actually if I were actually to sit down with Kendi and talk to him, right? That would be one of the first things that I would do just to show him that I'm not simply here to bash him or misunderstand him or destroy, you know, his personhood, ruin his career. That's not what I'm out to do, right? I I just make it explicit. I put it on the table and I just say, "Look, I get I get that your motivation for all of this is you want to make the world a better place. You want to make, you know, equality happen, right? You see it as not not happening at all or, you know, not happening enough and you want to fix that problem. I totally feel that. And I want to fix that same problem, right? So now we can talk. Now, you know, I'm not your enemy. We have a common goal and I'm just setting it up that way. It's a, it's a, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to call it a tactic because it's not meant to be strategic. It's meant to be genuine. It's meant to be honest. You're just putting it out on the table so that both of you understand that the other is or at, even if it's just you like i do it even if other people don't extend me the same courtesy i do it because i think this is the best way it's this is what's most important like people want to be heard and they want to be understood right and especially somebody like kendi who is constantly being spoken about right and constantly being criticized i have no trouble believing that he's going to enter any engagement with anybody with his arms up, his defenses are up. He's going to be, you know, expecting just blades just thrown at him immediately, right? And what I would do is just say, "Hey, look, I'm not out to hurt you, man. If you convince me, great. But as of right now, I think you're wrong. But I know that what you're trying to do is fix something, and the thing you want to fix, I also want to fix. I have different ideas about how to do that." And so now we can talk about what your idea is, how I understand it, and whether I disagree. And then, you know, I can throw my ideas against yours and see what happens, right? None of this requires that he reciprocate, right? In order for me to do it. Um, but obviously the conversation will be more productive if he did, if he does. Um, but it's just about it's just about taking that extra step because. I notice that we can't assume it anymore. We can't assume that extra step, right? A lot of people are walking around being compassionate and just assuming like, look, I know this person is just misguided or whatever, uh, you know, according to me, this person is misguided, but they think they're doing the right thing. They're just wrong, right? And then they just jump straight to the arguments. But the other person might think, oh, this person's coming to attack me, to attack me, right? So especially because so much conversation is happening on the internet, you lose the face-to-face -face thing, you lose the gestures, you lose the facial, 
you know, the sort of small facial, you know, indicators, you lose tone, you lose all these things, right? So this is kind of a corrective for that to say, let me, let me make this as clear as possible that I'm, I come in peace and all I'm concerned with are the ideas that you're espousing. All I'm, uh, I'm not, I'm not out to ruin you or destroy you, right? I don't think you're a monster. I just think you're wrong. And when, once you do that, you've kind of set up this paradigm where there's no need for the person to feel personally attacked because you've already kind of edified them. You've already kind of said, look, I, I see you as a person. I see who you are and I, I feel your intentions. I feel your motivation. I understand them and I, and I agree with them. And now we're just going to get into the details. Okay, I have no problem, like even with, like I said, someone who I completely vehemently disagree with, I have no problem starting from that standpoint and saying, mm -hmm. okay, look, you know what? I th you think you're trying to do good and you think you're trying to achieve X. I also want to achieve X, but here's where we differ and here's where we're going to think each other's wrong or whatever and start right. off from that. I have no, I, that's fine, but mm -hmm. again... That's pretty much all it is. Yeah, but now I'm not... I okay, it doesn't matter that you know the other your interlocutor doesn't give it back to you. Like, fine, I that's I'm all good with that, mm -hmm. but at certain points, okay, if you are speaking with someone from a fundamentalist faith, yep, questioning the tenets of the faith to them, even if you say, I think you're doing good is questioning their personhood because yeah. they are their faith. Mm -hmm. And again, I'm looking at this stuff like a religion and some of the people who are coming out of like, now it's getting into K through 12. It has been for a couple of years, but it's been in high schools for since about 2010 in certain high schools in certain districts. I'm not saying it's, you know, um, yeah, but it's in a lot more colleges. So, I'm looking at it as converts and you know, I've seen converts to Islam and the converts for the first four or five years are the most zealous. Right. And so when you question, like, you know, when you hear something like curing a deaf person of their deafness is a genocide on the deaf identity. And I mean, th these are serious statements here from quote unquote serious people. Yeah, I've heard them. Okay. Now, there's not much way to talk about transableism and deafness when, even if you tell them that you think that they're, you know, like even if you convince them that you think that they're coming from a good place, right? And, mm -hmm. and you're meaning it sincerely and you're not being sarcastic or, you know, anything about it, you're, you're being sincere and they believe you that you're being sincere. When you come up to someone who is that faithful, like, you know, that religious, and you attack that tenet of their faith, right away, they think you're attacking them. Mm -hmm. And I mean, like, I think you have to be aware of that as well going in. Like, you're, oh, sure. These conversations are not going to be easy. They are going to be rough. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Basically, it's, yeah, I mean, you're, you're pointing to, um, Yeah, you're pointing to the the crux of the issue, right? But it's just, uh, 
if I can at least get this person to not feel threatened by me, right? So if, if somebody, if it's, if we're talking about somebody like this, right? Somebody where let's bring it back to like, a you know, um, freshly converted Muslim, right? And they're really fervent, super zealous, right? They're, I mean, it's actually more interesting because those people can't wait to tell you about everything they think and everything they believe, right? And so curiosity is a big thing, right? Going in with curiosity and at least in your own mind, just saying, okay, this person has, has this set of beliefs. I think those beliefs make no sense, but let me let me just probe further. Let me understand how this person understands what they believe, right? I understand it my way. Let me understand it their way. And let me ask them, right? So one of the questions that somebody posed to me was, um, I forget his name now, but uh, the 9-11 hijacker, the main one, uh, oh God. I forget his name, but but basically someone was like, all right, it's it's September 10th, 2001, and you just sat down with this guy and he's explaining to you what he's about to do, right? How do you star man that, right? <laughs> and like, you know, like I mentioned, you know, it's it's easy to star man this person because they're the ideology is so clear right but then you move to the next step of like okay but can you actually get anywhere with this person by doing that can you convince them right and i would approach this person with curiosity right like i'm familiar with islam but i've i haven't read the quran i've never practiced right uh, so there's no way i know it better than they know it at least at least you know what they know I don't know it as well as they do. So I would be like, okay, well, look, I get that the reason you think what you're thinking and the reason you want to do what you want to do is because you believe it's the, you know, it is the interpretation of the scripture that you understand, but I don't understand it. Can you walk me through it? And I would just start asking questions, right? So kind of like what you did with this person, you were talking about queer ideology, right? You basically did the, um, the Denzel Washington in Philadelphia thing. Where he's like, you know, explain this to me like I'm four years old, right? Don't give me jargon because I don't understand. Just explain it to me like I'm the dumbest person you've ever met. And let, let me see if I can get you here. And she started doing it. She started explaining it to you, right? And in the act of explaining it to you, she could see some of the incongruities, right? Now, I'm not saying that I will successfully convert, you know, uh, um, a jihadist, right? Especially not 24 hours before they're about to do their big thing, right? But, um, but that is that is the way in, I think. And you mentioned Daryl Davis, and that's basically what Daryl Davis did. You yeah. know, he he sat down with Klansmen, and he let them talk, and he asked them questions, and but, he he learned more about them, and he approached from that kind of perspective, and that disarmed them enough to start kind of as they're explaining as they're you know engaging with him they start kind of analyzing their own point of view that possibility only exists when you allow for the fact that you're talking to a human being okay like now with the fund like with with you know the 9-11 bomber right or mm -hmm. whatever just any terrorist the yep. night before or anything like that now what I've read about counterterrorism and what I've read about de-radicalization, and this is even going back to like the gangs in the eighties, like 
the Crips of the Bloods, and then you had the white supremacists. Basically, they were even the white supremacists were fighting for drug turf and whatever, right? The skinheads. Mm-hmm. But when you do the de-radicalization, um, it's not a very good book, but it has a couple of insights because this guy converted to Islam, went and joined the Taliban, and like went to Afghanistan that he was waiting to meet a courier or something. And the courier was late. So he started getting pissed off. So he started, went on the internet and looked up inconsistencies in the Quran. This is how he describes it. <laughs> and it just planted a doubt. Now, mm-hmm. like, so you're talking about the jihadists, like, okay, no, you're not going to convert that jihadist to an atheist. Right. But at least not you, in, not in one sitting. <laughs> yeah. But it, no, but, but if you actually, knew about the faith like i'm I'm not saying okay no not everyone's gonna have to sit no one has a time to sit there and read through all all this stuff right so yes obviously but let's say if you knew what the faith was uh you could have come at it from a different angle whereas you can try to plant doubt because you you just need a little bit of doubt stop a guy from killing himself and a bunch of other people yeah. You need a lot more doubt for him, him to stop believing that it's okay to kill the infidel. Right? Mm-hmm. There, there's there's two different levels there, right? Yeah. There's the people who will go do the Charlie Hebdo and the people who will cheer it on. Mm-hmm. You know? um, so you just need to get that little bit of doubt. And again, when I was speaking to that woman, I mean, I didn't just start off like, oh, blah, 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 you're queer. This is, I said, you know, because we just, because we'd been talking about some of this stuff. So, so some of these things came up and I said, look, I did this because I was, and I told it straight out. Like I said, wanted to find out why I was being called a white supremacist for criticizing Islam. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not white, I'm a little, <laughs> more of a cocoa Brown or whatever, but you know, like, yeah. <laughs> and I told her like, okay, this is what I've read. And I, you know, I, I had spent at that point, I think about 15 months reading almost nothing, but, critical race theory and intersectionality and um like i said I, <laughs> I read i read some some queer theory and some gender theory and i i read some of the Foucault, um, Foucault stuff when he talks about homosexuality um yeah. i didn't i didn't d- dive into postmodernism again i had some of it back in university and i didn't want to go through that oh. but yeah i know i mean like i i literally i said like i want to find out what this stuff is yeah and like the first thing i read was white fragility i'm like this is nuts <laughs> I'm like, why, where's this coming from? And then I went back to the roots and I started with like Derek Bell. And there's like one of the books I have, it says, you know, the 25 papers that laid the foundations for critical race theory. And, mm-hmm. and so I like, I was talking to her about that and I said, look, I've read this stuff and I kind of understand it, but like, I'm tr- I still don't get where this comes from. So I was letting her know that, yes, I've read it. And yes. Okay. So I think that works a little better than you, like, Obviously, if you don't know anything about it and say, can you please explain it? I mean, you have to get someone to explain it to you, right? Like you need that. Like if you mm-hmm. don't know anything about it, you need yeah. that there. So you can talk to the guy. You can talk to the suicide bomber right, the night before. Um, but he's going to give you his version. And right. his version is such a steel trap in his head that he might not see the inconsistencies. Whereas mm-hmm. I was talking to her about it from her perspective, saying, this is what I've read. This is what I know about it. And then I then I said, okay, just give it to me in plain. Don't try to use the jargon, because mm-hmm. I, I I wanted her to take that step. But if you don't have, like, I, I, that's why 
I can't remember who said it. It was, it was a stupid tweet, but someone said like, you know, reading this stuff is a real waste of time, but unfortunately to try to understand it and try to, you know, fight it or whatever, you have to read it. Yeah. And I mean, like, like, honestly, I, if I wasn't on medical leave, I wouldn't have had the time and I would not have had the patience to right. sit and read this stuff. Cause it is fairly awful. <laughs> I, mean, so, I mean like i mean it depends on which where you're coming from like if you know something about it i think it'd be better to come at it to try to cast doubt yeah for that sure. person's mind mm -hmm. but yeah okay you have to understand it but when you're asking someone who's ready to be commit suicide bombing or but like okay forget even that <laughs> someone who's ready to go um to the funeral and cheer on a guy who you know killed a senator which happened right. in Pakistan, like you know, a couple hundred thousand people showed up to this, the, the, the terrorist funeral. Yeah. Okay. When you're ready to do that, you have a very, very steel trap version of your, you know, you have a very closed, narrow version of your faith mm -hmm. and it's very literal and it's very, you know, like I said, it's, it's, it, it is shut like a trap. And like, if you don't know anything about Islam and you get that person to explain Islam to you, mm -hmm. okay. Either you're going to run away horrified or you might say, oh, that sounds kind of cool. Like, I mean, I, I don't think there's any, any middle ground there. Like most people will run away scared and some people might say, oh, well, that's cool. I'll join. Um, right. But yeah, like it's, like, that's why I think it's some of these conversations. It's again, for the audience, whatever, who might not have read any of this stuff, it's better to have, you know, like a McWhorter and a Kendi talking this out. So people in the audience can actually really understand what's, what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry, I'm just going to rant a little bit more here. Like, I think one of our problems is, uh, we don't even know people haven't taken the time to figure out what their first principles actually are. People say, mm -hmm. oh, I'm a liberal or I'm a conservative or I'm progressive or whatever. Right. Like it just, but have, or I'm for free speech, but like, have you actually sat down and figured out what you mean by free speech? Do you like, Personally, I say like the First Amendment is the best law there is to protect you from from like the government encroachment. Mm -hmm. But I think societally, you should try to live by as if the First Amendment applied to you in society. I think yeah. that is the limit where you know if you're calling for violence, if you're you know trying to conspire to break the law or something like that, that that that's where the speech is limited. Like obviously, like you know, uh, you know, Doctor Joe over there, and you say, oh no. no he never went to med school. He's going to kill you, blah, blah, blah. But turn, you know, he's like the best doctor in the country. You just don't like him. You're like, mm -hmm. yeah, it's slander and stuff like that. But I don't think people have actually taken the time to, to look at that. So I think like I had a conversation a little while ago with this guy named Ryan uh, Bennett. Ryan's a really cool guy. And he had this idea of a protocol for conversation. Mm. I think uh, you should check him out. You try to find him on Twitter. He's, um, he's not there much, but I think you'd like his idea of protocol. And I said, and it was the same thing I said to him. Like, the first thing you have to do, though, before you do that protocol, before you initiate in that conversation, is you have to be aware of where you're coming from. Because I don't think a lot of people do. Like, I don't think. Mm, yeah, I think true. a lot. Of, I don't think a lot of people, even the people who say, um, like, okay, there was a we had that exchange recently. He was like, uh, your there was Jay had a. Um, a screenshot yeah. and like this woman said blah, blah blah black people can't be racist like well i don't think they really believe that in my mind that was looking back at like the islam debate and people mm -hmm. say oh people oh, they don't really believe in jihad like they don't really believe that i'm like 
yeah they do mm. and it's like, they're being taught this they're being indoctrinated into it they're like they yeah. actually do believe that and it's you know they're so like i i sorry i, I like i don't think like going into it naively saying well i don't think they believe that like i understand where you're coming from saying you think you want to do good but it's mm. we've been through this recently with islam like let's not go through that again when people are telling you what they believe when like you're seeing how far it's going in schools oh yeah um, when you're seeing this stuff coming out like there was another one recently i think it was eric kaufman who did the study about how people in universities is like 65% don't want to express their opinion in, in, mm -hmm. in the universities. It's like, that's scary. Yeah. Like, you know, like you, you got to start acknowledging that you got to start acknowledging that. Yeah. The, I think the, I remember that exchange. And I think, I think what Jay was saying was that uh, he wonders if the woman who tweeted that, what she was saying was, you know, um, you know, don't patronize Asian owned businesses. We should yeah. stop. Right. And someone said that's racist. And then, you know, her, her response was, I can't be racist because the definition of racist means, mm. you know, power plus privilege and prejudice. Uh, so, uh, you know, as a, as a black person, I, I cannot be racist by definition. That, that was kind of her response there. Um, and then I think, I think what Jay was trying to say was that uh, he wonders if this woman would be as strident and and be as willing to say what she's saying to the asian business owner's face right if she was staring at this person in the eyes and saw their response if she would feel something and maybe maybe be slightly less you know zealous um the cover of you know social media and the fact that she doesn't have to face anybody when she says this stuff i feel like that's what he was kind of getting at and i think that I, I know what he means. I feel like, you know, it's definitely harder to stab someone than to just fly over and drop a bomb. Okay. Right? Yeah. The bravery of being out of range. I get yeah, that. But, so, uh, so there's that, but, but, you know, but there's also the thing of, I mean, you know, you literally have people decapitating people on the street for drawing yeah. a cartoon. Right. So that level of, of, um, zealotry exists for sure. But there was also, this was during the, like, this was like last, I, I don't know if it was, before or after George Floyd, but a couple of, might've been after the George Floyd incident. Like I'm trying to place it because there's so much that went on, but there was a couple of incidents where it was Asian people behind a counter mm -hmm. and there were black people being racist towards them and blah, 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 blah. And it's like, yeah. you know, like you've got whiteness and this kind of crap. And I mean, like they're saying it straight to them. They're, they're videoing yeah. it and they're putting it out there. Or like I said, that young woman in the thing at university of Virginia got up and said you know all white people out of here because you're making us feel unsafe right now she believes that mm -hmm. because she's been taught a weird version of safety yeah and you know but i'm sorry at some point or other someone at the university has to call that out and say like no that's that's explicitly racist like you cannot do that right you know we're I mean? working with different definitions now that's part of the issue yeah but mm -hmm. That, that's that's again the things that like it's it makes it difficult to have the, the communication that's necessary to yeah. to you know, when we can change definitions that quickly i mean when they change right. definition of um what sexual preference 
with Amy, Amy right. Barrett Comey. I mean, like it was in 12 hours. Yeah. Like, you know, she said it that evening and the next morning, the de- dictionary changed the definition. Like that's, right. that's yeah. scary. It is. <laughs> but okay. I think like going from here, that kind of gets into like, the, I, I think part like the huge part of this problem is the education system. And I think it's at some point, like it's got to be acknowledged right now, like, especially like what's going on in the like K through 12, like some of the, like these things that are coming out and I've, I've been following this for a couple of years and it's really scary. Mm. So that article you did about lowering the standards, like, you know, and I've been seeing this for a couple of years, like two, a couple of years ago in New York city, they had a, I mean, yeah. the, you can find it. The guys have been fired now with the person they've hired is even more committed to social justice. Um, but the Carranza or whatever the guy's name was in New York city, mm-hmm. he was, this was in 2018, how, you know, asking students to be punctual and asking them to hand their stuff in on time is yeah. not culturally sensitive and to be culturally sensitive, you don't, you shouldn't penalize non-white kids. Right. I mean, I, you know, back when I was a kid, that's what racists said about black and brown people. Oh, they're just lazy. They're never on time. They can't keep us. I mean, right. when I see that, I mean, I, it makes my blood boil. Or, or when I read that, you know, yeah. math is a white thing. I'm like, sorry, you're using Arabic numerals that came from India. Like, you know what are you talking about like you know it just That'd be it. yeah <laughs> fundamentally incorrect but yeah. but i mean yeah the, i mean well first of all white what does that mean it's it's a mean like the these these concepts are meaningless it's nonsense right and we're we we kind of you know we acknowledge that race is a, a social construct mm-hmm. we acknowledge that it was just made up and it was made up by people who wanted to oppress other people as a means to oppress other people right but at the same time we make it the most important thing about every interaction that we can think about everything that matters right who you know who gets the oscar who's starring in this mm-hmm. movie you know who gets the grammy uh who gets the job it's all about this construct that we've already acknowledged is is nonsense and that you know we keep reifying it by by underlining it and making it more and more important in every possible scenario you can think of now there's the argument of course which i acknowledge that yeah race is made up but it was imposed upon us and we are living in the world created by it and now we need to respond to it but how you respond to it is important right i don't need to for example you know we're living in a a society that was heavily influenced by christianity right Mm mm-hmm I don't need to believe Christianity. I don't need to acknowledge Christianity as anything but a belief that, you know, as far as I'm concerned, makes no sense and has no bearing on reality, right? I don't have to acknowledge any of that to move around in the world and deal with the the after effects of the fact that, you know, a lot of this was built by people who believe that and it's structured in such a way that is, you know, reflective of it. Right. I don't I don't need to accept it. I don't need to I don't need to internalize Christianity to move around in a world shaped by Christianity. I can reject the idea completely. Yeah. But okay, like one thing about the United States, and I'm not gonna go as far as like I I haven't read the book. I've heard him talk about it a couple of times, so I don't want to come off like saying like I read this book. Um, but I mean I've heard this debate before, but like the founding myth, right? Hmm. So no, the founders expressly tried to keep religion out of it 
Yeah, yeah. Okay. But where I disagree with that book is the people themselves were highly religious. So the oh, murder laws, the st- like the laws against stealing, the law, you know, like right. all that stuff that came out of a Christian ethic. Like, you know, okay, that I, that, man. yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. As far as the founding of the United States and what the founding fathers were trying to do, like if you go back and read all that stuff, yes, they were trying to keep religion out of government as much as possible. Mm-hmm. And trying to keep government from meddling into religion as well. Like the, the wall was more from government imposing religion and government meddling into religion, but it's also meant to keep religion out a bit, but that doesn't always work. Because um, <laughs> you can't keep people out and people. Yeah, are exactly. Um, over the wall. Yeah. Uh, but um, yeah, no, no, I, I, I get the, you know, like there is that, you know, Christian. And if you want to say more Protestant, depending where you are in the United States, I'd say the majority of the United States is Protestant over Catholic. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was the same thing, like where I grew up in Montreal is just, uh, but yeah, like I get all that and no, you don't have to, you know, it's okay. I remember my father, this was, was probably about 16 or so. Cause I was working in his factory mm-hmm. and it was around Christmas time. Uh, one of his friends was there. And he was another Muslim guy. And my father's delivery guy came in, like it was his last delivery before Christmas. And he was walking out and you know, came in and said, Go, goodbye to my dad, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. And my dad said, Merry Christmas to him. Mm. And my dad's friend looked at him and said, like, you're Muslim. Like, oh, how can you say Merry Christmas? And my dad's like, <laughs> what? He goes, yeah, look, Jesus is important in Islam. It's his birthday. Yeah. I said, I wished him. I said, it's basically saying happy birthday to Jesus. And right. like, you're like, so yeah, I know you don't have, and, I still and, say bless you, even though I don't believe yeah, I don't believe yeah, there's anybody doing blessing. You know, like, no, <laughs> but it, it, it bugged my dad to no end when they were making like, oh, you couldn't have Merry Christmas at City Hall because that's separation of church and state. Mm. You know, I believe religion has no place forming policy, but if you're so weak-minded that, you know. Merry Christmas at city hall is going to turn you into a Christian. Like, <laughs> okay. You know, there, there's a problem there. That's, that's why some of these things, but yeah, well, no, yeah, sorry. We're, we're getting we're, way off here, but yeah, we're on topic, but, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, it's just the, the idea of, of, you know, punctuality being white. Yeah. I mean, I got this growing up, you know, I'm, I'm Dominican. You yeah. know, my parents are from the Dominican Republic. I was born here and, you know, 90%, I think of mm. Dominicans, are of african descent right because it's there's fucking slaves it's just you know like there's no escaping this right and you know part of the piece that i wrote is that i had just gotten my ancestry.com results and you know it jumps from the dominican republic straight to africa just boom Mm -hmm. you know multiple places in africa right because slaves it's just the way it is and you know a few a few points in you know the area of spain the iberian peninsula but tons of it is you know africa it's just the way it is right and uh you know but i i would get all this stuff growing up right where it's like oh dude you know you sound white right because the way that i would speak or you listen to white music because i wasn't listening to hip-hop i was listening to you know classic rock music i was listening to queen in middle school right nobody knew what the hell that was and I, I I'm I constantly got that thing of like you're acting white, you're being white, you're not being, 
you know, what you are. You're not being brown or whatever, you know, Spanish is what we used to say. Uh, and I just never, that never made any sense to me. Like it's, it's just, but I'm, I'm just being who I am. Like, how am I not who I am and also Dominican, right? Clearly that's happening because my behavior doesn't erase my ethnicity or that this, this idea that you must perform a certain way in order to be accepted is crazy. And now we move on to these things where punctuality and being good at math and stuff like that is 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 being rerouted and called white as a way to skirt the fact that many people are struggling with this stuff yeah. for various reasons. That's that's terrible. That's a terrible way to fix a problem. No, but okay, but that that that's why I said like you know Kendi's version of it. so like it, like mm -hmm. this thing of teaching maths and teaching reading. Then when I was looking at some of the statistics, only thirty percent of the people nationally can read. At grade level hmm. got people graduating high school who can't read at a third grade level yeah I mean, that's a serious problem yeah and getting rid of standardized testing i'm not saying standardized testing is the answer it's a silver bullet mm -hmm. but you need to know where people are like right. maybe you need to go instead of having a standardized test every month have the teacher quiz the students like once a week like if you're reading whatever you're reading like it's english class right whatever you're reading in that class that week have the teacher quiz the students once a week on that book so to make sure that they get the book right instead of having a standardized test and teach that mm -hmm. test once a month or whatever it is yeah i mean but to, to get rid of it and to to just equate it with being white i'm like you know like, yeah. like, like okay the smithsonian had it they got rid of the graphic but it's still you can still find it on their website yeah and there's that. this there's this thing called uh trust education or trust something or other um and they have this online workshop for getting rid of white supremacy culture in schools and it's love of the written word objectivity professionalism you mm -hmm. know i'm looking at this i'm like okay i think the egyptians had some objectivity when they were building the pyramids <laughs> you know you kind of needed, needed to be, yeah yeah like i mean <laughs> you know uh, and it's just like the, the this is a white way of thinking and like you know the, the enlightenment values are white values there's a guy mm -hmm. I, and i read about this recently and i wish I, i'd love to go find this guy's writings like his guy name whose name was Jacob. he was living in ethiopia and this was about 100 years before kant and hume and all mm -hmm. these people and he fell afoul of the king because he made some criticisms of Christianity or Catholicism or something. And he went and ran away, lived inside a cave. Now, the guy had been trained in local uh, rhetoric, and then he'd also been trained by the Jesuits. And the Jesuits can teach. Like, I'll give him that much. Mm. And he came up with the same ideas as, like, they found some of his writings. They came up, he, he wrote similar things to, like, Hume and Locke and Paine. And he came up with enlightenment ideas 100 years before they were in Europe. I mean, these are universal human ideas that have come up over and over and over again. Yeah. You know, in Man, math works. Yeah. The pyramids no, but, are still uh, here. Right. No, but I mean, like, okay, Hume and Locke weren't talking about math. They were talking more about liberty and freedom. And like he was coming up with those kind of ideas. But yeah, math works. Math works. You know, two plus two is four. Sorry. The five thing is a little silly. Like, you know, like, <laughs> but to say that this is a white thing is to, it's to deny yourself your own past. Like I, 
again, sticking yeah. with the, like going back to the Islam thing, the golden age of Islam, you know, it ended when the Mongols raided Baghdad, but it technically ended about a hundred years before that with Al-Ghazali. When Al-Ghazali said, we don't need any more new math. We have enough math. We only need math to do what this does. And Al-Ghazali was a Sufi. And one of the things of the Sufi uh, aspect of it is everything is done for the glory of Islam and Allah. That mm -hmm. is what why everything is done. He took it to an extreme. And I mean, and like, I know Sufis are derided to this day, but like, like today, but Al-Ghazali was given the title, the proof of Islam. And some people said, if you got rid of the Quran and the Hadith, you could rebuild a lot of Islam just from Al-Ghazali's writings. Mm. Now, this guy was revered. So he, like, because of him, they stopped that enterprise. Now, if you're going to come here and stop the enterprise because it's it's racist and math is a white thing and, you know, love of the written word is is white and, like, I mean, you're setting up a generation for complete and utter failure. Like, I mean, yeah. You know, well, because reality is reality, whatever you think about it. Yeah, has, exactly. has no bearing, right? Yeah. And. I mean, you know, the, the thing that I that I'm talking about in the piece is you know, there are problems with standardized tests. I hated standardized tests when I was going through school, mm. right? Because I didn't feel that they adequately they highlighted or or encapsulated the things that I was good at, right? Mm. I was a creative person. I was a I was you know I was a writer. I'm a writer, and you know I my brain was more in that headspace, right? And I hated school. I hated being there, and I hated these tests. I felt like I was just being checked off as you know, just a number, right? So there's there are plenty of things that I can say about the problem with standardized testing, right? And you know, what I'm talking about in the piece is actually more conceptual because I'm responding to um, what Allison Collins from San Francisco, the Board of Education, what she said in this video that was circulating. Oh God, yeah. Which was, you know, when we talk about merit and meritocracy, those are racist systems, right? She said something to that effect. And I know what she means because there are real problems, right? There are reasons why we continue to see certain groups underperforming in certain areas, right? There are reasons for them. And, you know, it's not racist reasons where, you know, it's like, oh, they're just not good. They're just not good enough. No, like, the vast majority of them are hobbled from the beginning because the places where they they are going to school are under-resourced, right? They're underfunded. The the structures are are broken, right? So there are so many things wrong with with everything around surrounding their upbringing and their education that need that you know need to be fixed. People need help. People need better structures. People need better social safety nets, all of these things, right? So the idea of a meritocracy, which is, you know, the the gun goes off, everybody starts running, fastest person wins, right? Whoever's the best is going to get by. That's the idea of a meritocracy. But that's a fantasy because nobody starts on the same starting line, right? The race starts, some people are 20 feet ahead of other people based purely on luck, like, you know, the random luck of birth, circumstance historical reasons for you know why certain communities are are underprivileged and under-resourced right so so 
I feel what she's feeling when she says what she's saying. But I make in the piece, I make a distinction between meritocracy, the thing that I just described, and merit, right? And I think that that is really important. And I think, you know, this, the failure to make this distinction is where things like being punctual and, you know, math is white. That's where that stuff is coming from, right? Merit is, you know, like if you have a push up contest and, you know, a hundred push ups in two minutes wins, I can only do 50. I don't win. But if I do a hundred, I win. That's merit, right? It's like I'm getting off on my own steam. But if you recognize now, now there's nothing wrong with that, right? So there's nothing wrong with somebody who is extremely good at math getting into a physics program and becoming a physicist. Right? There's nothing wrong with that. We want that. We want our society to to bring up and highlight people who are extremely capable at wonderful things. Right? We want talented surgeons. We want talented musicians. Right? Yeah. That's merit. Right? So, so here by analogy, actually, this is a good analogy. So the you know we've heard about we heard the story many years ago about symphony orchestra somebody asked them why are there so few women in your orchestra and the person said i don't even know if this is if this is like an accurate story anymore but this is the story that i heard um why aren't there some why aren't there as many women in your orchestra and the orchestra director said women just aren't as good like we audition them and they just don't sound as good right and so they did an experiment they started putting they started doing the audition process where the musician was behind a curtain and you couldn't tell what they looked like or who they were. And you were literally just listening. And once they implemented that, suddenly more women started making it into the orchestra, right? So that was a problem, that a problem of bias that was corrected. And now we've solved, right? And blind auditions has become the norm. But now we're in a place where uh, we're looking at the orchestra and we're saying the the proportion of people of color is not reflective of the population. Therefore, there must be some horrible racist bias, right? So now let's remove the blind auditions so that we can actually actively place musicians in there, right? And now I'm a musician. And if I knew that I was placed in this, this you know, New York Symphony Orchestra, because of the color of my skin and not because they thought I was a really good musician, I would feel awful about oh, that. Same. I've said that over and over again. Like I right? don't want a job because I'm brown. I don't want a promotion yeah. because I'm brown. I want it because nobody, I'm the best person. Yeah. Yeah. No, nobody wants that because I mean, how, how, how will it feel? Right. Like I would feel inadequate every day and maybe other people wouldn't. Right. So I, I mentioned that in the piece too. Like maybe it's just me. I know, you know, some people would probably be fine with it. They would think, no, this is just desserts. I deserve this. Okay, great. But I personally would feel terrible if I was given something, not because of the merit, not because I was capable. And I, you know, I passed the tests. I passed the, you know, whatever, whatever the standard is, I went over the standard and I showed my ability, right? That's important to keep because, first of all, just for the you know the personal edification of the people, right? You want them to feel that they have accomplished something. If you just you know pick them up and carry them over the finish line, they're not going to feel like they won the race. You can tell them, you can give them the ribbon, right? But they're not going to feel like they did it because they know that they didn't. But there's a way to fix 
the reason why it's so much harder for people like me to run the race in the first place. That's where we should be focused. You know, that's where we should be putting our attention is making it so that, you know, back to the symphony orchestra thing. Yeah, let's make it so that um, there are actually robust music programs in inner city schools where the majority population is people of color, right? So that anybody with the tendency to become a musician has the opportunity. And then they grow up and they're excellent musicians. They pass the audition and they get into the symphony orchestra. That's what we want, right? We don't want to fix it superficially uh, downstream. We want to go upstream, fix the upstream causes so that by the time it gets downstream, it's corrected. That's what we want to do. So like, I agree with a lot of what you're saying there. And like, mm -hmm. like the, the whole thing about let's give, you know, uh, black students an extra 250 points on their SATs will take points away from Asian and white kids, right? Like instead mm -hmm. of doing that, if you fix the feeder system, so they don't need that bonus. That's that's going to help. But okay, like I said, I'm not do not like critical race theory or the anti-racism that stems from it. But I, if you go back and you read Bell and Crenshaw, mm -hmm. or or even people like um, uh, Peggy McIntosh and things like that, like they could write. Like Crenshaw's a lawyer. Bell was the lawyer. They knew how to write. Like Kendi and D'Angelo are just awful. Okay. Um, <laughs> And okay, and here's the problem with it. Like, I think what Kendi and D'Angelo do is just like awful. Like, I don't like Bell at all, but I'll give him some credit here. In one of his papers that he wrote, he talked about the education and he said they shouldn't have desegregated schools, they should have desegregated, desegregated education. Mm. Now, he goes on further and just said, no, they should have kept everything separate. Now I spoke, I've spoken to this guy named Ian Rowe, uh, Ian's in education. He's run a lot of charter schools. He's starting up, a, a another series of charter schools that they're based on like a European baccalaureate system. And I mean, he told me about these things called the, the Rosenwald schools. And it was, I believe he told me it was Booker T Washington. Said, okay. We're going to be segregated. We have to be separate, but segregated doesn't mean have to be lesser. So he went and spoke to this guy, Rosenwald. He got him to finance these schools. And some of these schools were comparable with the best white schools in the country. Now, when Brown versus the Board of Education happened, schools had to be desegregated. These schools got shut down. Mm. Okay, now, if instead of shutting down the schools and said, okay, all the schools have to be desegregated, all the schools have to allow either race to come in and if you're in, you know, an urban center in New York City and you're not around one of these schools and you've got to be bust or whatever, you're in the deep south and you've got to be bust, fine. Okay, that's that should have been a stopgap measure until you can fix the schools in those neighborhoods. Like that should that should have been the essential goal. So I see where he was coming from. Like, mm. yes, desegregate the education. Like instead of taking kids and busing them for an hour, fix the goddamn school where the kids are at. Right. Like Yeah, yeah. Like, so that's a my the hugest thing I have with this stuff and it's not like it's the biggest problem in the world and it's not like it's the most existential threat, but it gets in the way of solutions. Mm -hmm. If instead of trying to fix racism or we're going to fix the mistakes of the past, the mistakes of the past were the racism to fix that. Just stop being fucking racist. Like, you know, just stop it. 
right? Like mm-hmm. let's, let's just get away from race, which I think we were doing then around the mid to late nineties it just flipped back again. Um, yeah. But get rid of that whole racecraft thing, but don't look at solutions on a racial basis because I right. understand that, you know, I can look at a way of looking at reparations by investing far more heavily into the communities like you know, into black communities where they were affected by slavery and Jim Crow and whatever, like, you know, and in that community now in that neighborhood that used to be predominantly white, there might be Latino, there might be, you know, like poor white people, there might be whatever, but you fix that neighborhood, you fix that community, you help everyone out, but it's, it's fixing those communities. Right. And it's not just putting in a school, it's putting in a school, putting in a community center, putting something for kids to do, investing in business. So it's a kid's not walking a couple of blocks, you know, with bullets going on around him, right? Like there's a, there's a lot to be fixed here. Yeah. But just focusing on the race and say, we're going to solve racism. The problem is racism. We have to solve racism. The problem is the disparity. The problem is why the disparity is there. Let's look at the disparity. And I, that's why, where I see the CRT stuff, the anti-racism stuff. If you want to talk about, transgenderism or like any of the like the the social justice education fields if you want to talk about any of those things they put the focus on the wrong thing yeah and there's like climate change arguably is one of the biggest threats we're facing Mm. you're not going to fix climate change if you throw in climate justice and say oh you know what people of color are more affected by climate change so we have to fix that first Cause you can't fix that first. Yeah. I mean, I don't, the, the thing is, yeah, I, I see it as unnecessarily um, creating enemies, right? Yeah. It's, it's like, if we just focus on poverty, right? We focus on, let's fix this. Let's figure out ways to fix poverty, right? We want to stop people from suffering this way. You're going to disproportionately help black people. Hispanic people, right? Because they are disproportionately represented among the poor, right? So you're going to do the thing you want to do anyway, but you're going to do it in a better way. And you're going to have more allies because you're avoiding this, this completely unnecessary conversation, right? If you're focusing on fixing poverty, you're going to help poor black people. That's just going to happen. You're also going to help poor white people. They deserve help too. Mm-hmm. right there's no reason to deny it of them right it, it would be immoral to do that so this is what i mean is if you like there are better and worse ways to fix problems there are deeper and shallower ways to fix problems and sometimes the shallow ones feel better they feel faster kind of like what you we were talking about earlier about you know we could solve the homeless problem in one year for five you know five million bucks we're just going to kill them all, right that's a shallow problem that's a shallow solution and it causes deeper problems, right? Because now you have this murder policy, right? That who, you know, it's already heinous and terrible. How how much worse can it possibly get? Who knows? Right. This is what I mean is when we focus on, I mean, focusing on climate change through the lens of race, I haven't read anything on this. I don't understand how that makes any sense. Uh, because there's only one planet, right? There's not like earth for black people and then earth for white people. There's just earth. 
So we should probably just figure out how to fix Earth. You know, how to how to make it so Earth doesn't, you know, eliminate us by by, you know, flooding our cities and things like that. You know, and we're going to do the thing you want anyway, because that's part and parcel of the solution. So it seems like, like people are people are thinking so short term because they want these they you know they're I don't know. I mean, they're looking for they're looking for ways to highlight things that they consider important, and I consider them important too. But there's just better ways to fix this, right? There's, you know, if you solve poverty, you have just helped more black people than anyone has ever helped in history, right? Okay, but like, let's say you want to do, you want to work on both, right? I know Biden's talking about oh, green technologies will create jobs, but mm -hmm. like any, okay, this is way. You're off topic here, whatever, but shouldn't really. <laughs> no climate policy without nuclear is going to work. Like, I mean, right. it's the cleanest energy. It takes the least amount of space. Like hydro is, I guess, technically the cleanest, but the amount of flooding you have to do to create the dam and all that, that causes all kinds of other damage. Mm -hmm. Like nuclear power plants are small. They're getting better. They're more efficient. There's less weight, like blah, blah, blah. They're Okay. If you start that and do that construction, you're going to need construction workers. You're going to need people, you know, like you're, you're going to create jobs and you mm -hmm. might create little towns, like the, how the suburbs got built, little towns that were built, you know, like, so you might create little towns around those nuclear power plants, but you have a country like India that's saying that by 2050, we're going to have an electric grid going across the whole country. Cause right now you still have in the yeah. in little small communities, people burning dung, people burning wood, and it's just, you know, a lot of pollution, but India is going to go to coal. India is not, you know, they're not going to be terribly environmentally friendly. Mm -hmm. um, but if you start putting in nuclear power plants here, you could sell them to India. You can, you know, you have people trained here. You can go there. You can train them. A, that's getting India the energy it needs because India has a lot of energy problems. Like, I mean, like mm -hmm. go there every couple of years and Jesus Christ, it's like you lose power for about a couple hours every day. You know, <laughs> like, hours like that too. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, you get, you get stuff like that. I mean, this fixes getting people jobs is going to help fix poverty. Yeah. You know, like you could, you obviously not going to train everyone to be a nuclear engineer, but like I said, just in, at least in the construction thing, at least, you know, it, all that stuff, there's, there's work, there's, there's work after the fact. Um, I don't know. Like I remember when I was finishing high school, there was still the vocational option and it wasn't given that much of a disparaging thing. Like now I find that people, yeah. you know, you have to go to college. You know, I was speaking about this with someone the other day and I was just like, some of my friends who were in the trades, you know, okay. If I take a look at my friends who are in the trades and my friends who did university, there's a larger percentage of the ones in the trades that are better read than the percentage of the ones who did like a master's and he just focused on like, you know, I got a, I got an MBA and they just focused on business. Right. Like, the, you know, like the guys in the trades actually are better read and like more informed. They make but, a lot of money too. Yeah. Okay. But like, I don't see what, I don't know what the stigma around that was. And I don't know why it's been given such a bad stigma. Like, yeah. you know, being a carpenter is a noble profession. I mean, like, and to, 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 to work as a carpenter, to work as a mechanic, to work as mm -hmm. a lot of the stuff in the trades, like you can't be a carpenter if you don't know math. Right. Like you can teach a kid carpentry and math at the same time. Right. You know, like you can, 
like I, I, <laughs> like I said, they, these are there's so much stuff that goes on in the background, and I think when we get down to that univariant thing, like oh, this is homophobia, oh, this is racism, oh, this is sexism, oh, this is you know, like now that I, like I spoke to you about the star mining, like I get that and I understand it, and I like I still have a like I think you see a, like a slight reservation, like, you know, I I get that, like I I fully get that. You know, I accept that you think you're doing good. Mm-hmm. You know, like I, I get that. Like starting off from that, that's a great thing. But because I, I still think in certain cases there's some, <laughs> there's something there. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, like I, like that that that's where I that's my problem with all this stuff is it's it's not the biggest issue that we have to deal with. Yeah, it is the biggest impediment to the big issues that we have to deal with. Yeah, I agree. I think it's it's annoying that we have to get through this thing. There's always this thicket that we need to hack through just to get to the actual point and the actual problem. And there's so much talking past one another. There's so much confusion. Um, you know, the the responses that I've gotten to the the Newsweek piece about this merit thing. Um, I mean, I get where people are coming from. I you know they. I've been accused of being insensitive, um, which I really don't think I am. You know, I, I, I mean, I'm a part of this community that everyone is talking about. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, I, I've been accused of not understanding the way things work. And really all I'm saying is, Hey man, I, look, I get that, you know, I, and people like me, you know, people of color are underprivileged. I get that they start way behind because of things completely outside of their control. I I illustrate that in the piece. I go through. I go to great lengths to to show that I understand that. Right. And my only point is, look, help me get sneakers because it's not my fault that I can't afford them. Right. Help me get the training I need because I live in a place where it's not on offer and I didn't have anything to do with that. The structures are broken. My, my education system is broken, right? So give me those things and then let me, let me run the race myself. Let me try to win it myself. Don't pick me up and carry me over the finish line. Don't move the finish line to where I'm standing, right? That doesn't help me. That doesn't make me feel any better. It makes me feel worse. And I understand that you're trying to help me, but the the first place trophy means nothing because you've you've given it to me under false pretenses. That's the part about merit that we need to keep because it matters, you know, not just because of how I feel, but also because, you know, we need the people who are surgeons to know how to do surgery, right? We can't go down this road where we're just handing things to people, right? Not nobody's nobody's really saying that, but this is like the the logical kind of uh, end point that I'm seeing. It's like, all right, well, we're just giving people things because they want them, or because we need to have some kind of you know superficial parity by by race by racial makeup. You know, you're not correcting the problems. You're not correcting the reason why there's a disparity, right? If if there is one. You're not correcting it by doing this. You're 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 
basically you're implementing something that you're going to have to continue to do over and over again. Right. And it's, that's what I'm saying. Like, you know, the, if you fix the feeder system, you wouldn't right. have to give those 250 SAT scores yeah, or whatever. It is because we are just as capable as anybody. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, but we can't do it because we're hobbled, but you're not yeah. fixing the hobbling. You're just kind of dragging us over. And, and you know, I think this is going to be a good place to, to stop. I don't want to keep you too, too long, but, uh, like, <laughs> sure, sure. but yeah, no, I, I, I think that's like, that's just it. Like I want, I've never wanted special treatment. You know? Yeah. Like obviously I don't want to be, I don't want to be treated good or bad, like differently in a good way or in a bad way because of the color of my skin. Right. I Same. just want to be treated like everyone else. Like, you know, yeah. Like, you know, as far as I could, you know, like, and luckily in Canada, there was not a lot of overt racism. Like I, you know, I've dealt with it, but mm -hmm. here was more of the, the low expectation stuff. And like, right. that bugs me. Like, you know, that, what you were talking about with the, you know, getting rid of merit or just hiring someone just because they're, you know, the population's 13% black. We need 13% black, you know, violinist or whatever. Like, I, you know, like, no, yeah. it's, that is insulting like that you know, someone calling me a packy i can deal with because it just mm -hmm. makes me think that person's just ignorant and right you know, like i feel but this condescending oh we'll take care of you we'll make you know, like no, no no like that's that's even worse it's just like yeah you know, i hate that um, like I said, I don't want to keep you too long. So if you got any last words about sure. either star manning or what you were talking about uh, in your news well, piece or I'll put them together. Right. Yeah. So the, I know that what these people are doing is mm -hmm. trying to uplift minority communities for very good reasons, because they have been underprivileged. They have been historically disadvantaged and we can see the results of that. Right. So the, the intentions there are good. And I, I, I feel them. I feel that, but there are unintended consequences to the way that we go about doing this stuff. These, these approaches are superficial. They're often nonsensical and they end up harming the people that they're trying to help inadvertently, right? No one's trying to do this, but this is what's going on, right? I, I no longer, you know, if, if I'm given these things, if I feel like a diversity hire, right? I don't know if, if my application was good and I want to know, I want to know if my application was good. I can handle it. You know, I, you know, as a writer, you, you get used to rejection. You get used to being, you know, not even responded to, let alone rejected, right? Like you just don't, you don't hear back. You pitch something or you send an essay out. You just don't hear back. Right. But you also just hear, ah, oh, this isn't right for us. Sorry. And I'm like, ah, oh, man, what, what about it was wrong? You know, let me try to fix it. Let me try to get better. That's the way, right? That's the way the world works, but that's also just the way that it needs to be because we need to have standards for quality. We need to have standards for ability. We need to have standards for capacity. And if there is a group that isn't meeting those standards, that's a problem, right? We have to find why they're not meeting those standards and fix that. We don't simply say the standard itself must be the problem, right? Uh, you know, 100 push-ups is a good standard. Let's not lower it because a certain group of people can only get to 50. We're lowering it to 50 is not helping them do any better. Maybe, you know, 
figure out what their diet is. Maybe figure out, you know, do they have a gym? Can they train? You know, what's their routine like? Let's figure out why they're not measuring up because there is no, you know, biological reason why they can't. So something must be going on that we can fix. Let's do it. Let's fix it. You know, so again, we have a common project, but different methods and let's, let's figure out better methods. All right, cool. That's a <laughs> good place to end. Well, thanks a lot for coming on. Oh, thank you. And thanks everyone for listening. I'll be back.